Welcome back to season three of the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Blackwood. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. But if you didn't know, you do now. Keeping in line with that, this entire season has been focused on interviewing people who did or plan to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. If that sounds like you, reach out. We can talk about having you on the show, too. As much as we all hate commercials, they are a necessary evil these days. This is what keeps the show on the air. You can also show support by purchasing one of my many books or donating through PayPal. You can find the links to either option in the podcast description. As always, a portion of the proceeds do go to local organizations that help fight human trafficking. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm Amanda Blackwood. I have a remarkable author with me today. Uh, His name is Sean Hamilton, and he has had uh, quite the amazing life. And as usual, I'm going to let him tell you about it because he's going to do a way better job than I will. Podcast, Sean. Oh, thank you, Amanda. Thank you for having me on. It's a a pleasure to be here, an honor, um, and a privilege to so. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and kind of just talk about this mission and message so that's awesome and i'm really really happy to have you with me what you're doing is kind of a big deal um tell me a little bit about who you are to begin with let's start with where did you grow up where are you originally from i am from uh richardson texas so kind of a a, a suburb north of dallas um so my high school was in dallas texas uh i you know um so yeah just kind of grew up in the in the suburbs of Dallas. Very cool. Dallas is an interesting place. It, it sure is. Yeah. yeah Lots yeah. to do. And it's changed so much. Drastically. Since, for sure. Yeah. yeah for, <laughs> it's this giant concrete jungle. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was a, I had a, a wild childhood for sure. Um, and yeah. And then I got out and uh, I left, I left Dallas to join the Navy. And that's kind oh. of, what I, I just had this, really calling to kind of see the world and, you know, follow in my grandfather's footsteps. My grandfather served uh, in the Navy during World War II. He was stationed at Pearl Harbor uh, during the attack um, and kind of, you know, narrowly escaped basically by just fate of being on a, on a different Island the morning of the attack. Um, And yeah, so it was kind of a, a calling for me to, to really, following his footsteps because I never really got to meet him. He, he passed away kind of after my birth. And so, um, you know, we just have a lineage. He was, uh, he was, I'm a third generation Eagle scout. So he kind of started the process off. He was an Eagle scout, went through the boy scouts. My father did as well. And then, um, you know, that was a, a huge part of my childhood and, you know, not to get super heavy, super fast, but it just, uh, it was a very, um, defining moment in my life. Uh, because at a Boy Scout summer camp, my dad actually died in my arms at the top of a mountain um, due to a heart attack. And when I was 15 years old, it was kind of the uh, kind of pivotal coming of age trauma <laughs> that uh, really started off my my youth um, kind of into adolescence in a in a pretty dramatic way. Wow. Yeah. Man, that had to be so hard on you. Were you and your dad really close? 
Yeah, he was uh he was the stay-at-home dad. He was he ran a murder mystery dinner theater out of our house. He was oh, in a rock cool. band. He was my baseball coach. He was my you know, he was the scout master of my of my troop. He was also like all the way up. So I had been in scouts since Tiger Cubs. And so he was always the leader. And he was my den leader in Cub Scouts. He was my scout master in Boy Scouts. And he was the scout master of the troop at the time. He had taken uh, all of the rest of the boys up to the top of this mountain to this lodge where they we would typically go to meet all the rest of the kids that went on this giant hike. So I had just like went on a basically a 22 mile hike um, preparing for another high adventure hike later that summer. And when I got to the top, uh, he helped me take off the 60 pound pack that I was wearing kind of in preparation. And he just collapsed right there and, and kind of died in my arms. And um, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty brutal situation because he was so much in my life. Like he was the, he was the stay at home dad trying to keep me out of trouble. So he was always, he was a huge fixture in my life. And so I think, not only losing a parent is it hard, but it's also hard when that person is so much a part of your day in and day out life that the massive change was really, really hard as well. Cause it was, it just created this giant vacuum in my life because he was so much a part of it that, you know, everything, you know, after school curriculars, you know, all of the plays and the shows and the things that we were doing, the band rehearsals and concerts, like all of that stopped. I didn't have a coach anymore. My scoutmaster was gone. You know, like I couldn't go to scouts anymore just because he had been literally at every meeting and every camp out. So I just couldn't go back for a while. Wow. And yeah, so it was, a, it was a big challenge to overcome. Man, I can't imagine that whole Man, it just, oh, that's just. Yeah. yeah and I think oh. that that was what was, um, you know, it kind of started off this whole story about, you know, what I write about in the book that I put together was, you know, the first girlfriend that I had in high school, like we met right on the tail, like right the, you know, basically first semester that I started high school was right after like two or three months after my dad had died. So, that relationship was this huge escape for me because her family was like a huge just reprieve away from all of that pain because my family had been basically just kind of destroyed from it, right? My stepmom was, you know, going through her thing. My mom, you know, and my dad were still good friends. And so my mom was grieving and it, it just created this like real tumultuous environment and this relationship that I had was kind of the, you know, the lighthouse kind of helping me weather the storm of what was going on in this huge vacuum that had been created. But in that relationship, what had bubbled to the surface for her was all of the abuse that she had suffered as a child uh, at the hands of her stepfather and, and then intimate partner violence that she experienced when she was in eighth grade. Uh, you know, she had been repeatedly raped multiple times by this guy, you know, knife point and things. And um, so it bubbled up during our relationship. And so there was just this combination of trauma where I was helping her through hers. She was helping me through mine. And it just we we just developed this like really strong kind of trauma bond uh, in that relationship. And so when that relationship kind of, uh, you know, deteriorated in terms of, you know, we kind of detached the uh, intimate entanglements and things. We're still really good friends, but we were no longer dating. I was left with all of this real pain and animosity from 
that relationship and like what I had seen her go through and the recovery process and kind of the, uh, a lot of why I felt like the relationship didn't really out and kind of broke up was the emotional and physical distance that was kind of put between us because of the recovery process of what she was going through to heal from all of this abuse. And I didn't really know it at the time. I didn't have the language or anything around it. I just felt all this pain. I was really isolated. I was just alone and trying to figure out like how to be a partner in that space. Um, you know, there's no resources. The internet really wasn't a thing. And, you know, the Encarta, you know, Encyclopedia ROMs or the Encyclopedia Britannica doesn't really cover this issue. Um, and so there was just no real place to turn uh, for information back then. And, you know, unfortunately, flash forward all these years later, and I'm in a relationship with my wife. And, you know, two weeks after we start dating, she gets sexually assaulted. And right into our dating life. And so it's just this big black cloud kind of hanging over uh, the very beginning of our relationship. And again, I, how do I, how do I do this again? You know, uh, you know, kind of this, uh Oh, here we go again situation. And I'm like, I don't really know what to do. And I'm looking for resources. And there's just, there was just nothing uh, that talked about what it's like to be a partner, what your role is, how do I show up in different moments and um, so it kind of, that's kind of what has led this path. It's like a weird way of, you know, kind of being this life calling, but there's just these moments that kind of came up in my life around these people that I really care about and mean a lot. And I've just taken on this responsibility and this role in their lives and seen the recovery process in a couple different ways. And so it just kind of led me to this calling of being able to go, you know what, after recovering, going through all of that stuff with my wife seeing it from a different angle, reflecting on having conversations with, you know, my friend, my ex-girlfriend from high school and other survivors. I just kind of put together this idea where I was like, I want to, I want to create a tool for people. I want to build this bridge communication between partners and the survivors, because there's just so many survivors in this world. Right. Which means there's going to be so many partners as well. And I just feel like we as partners are drastically unprepared for what this road really is. And so, you know, having gone through it multiple times, seen it from different angles in terms of somebody whose trauma happened years ago and it's like bubbling up as they're going to therapy and everything's kind of coming to the surface to this trauma just happened, you know, literally last week. Um, how do we, how do we address that? And yeah, that's kind of, that, that, that's, that's the start really of why, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you've had enough uh, research at this point that you really have turned out volumes of stuff. Um, what do you think are some of the key factors that, that somebody needs to take into account right away when they know that they have been partnered with somebody uh, that is a survivor of some kind of a trauma? Yeah. And so the most important thing that I feel that I'm sitting here screaming from the rooftops about is how important the role of a partner really is. And and the way that I like to kind of tell this story is to just to, is to talk about it in a, a different context. Outside of the realm of sexual violence, let's just talk about another realm of PTSD that I think a lot of people are a little bit more familiar with. There's a lot more media around. There's movies made that are kind of, you know, all out there, Academy Award winning type of things. And it's another subject that hits close to home being a veteran is combat veterans experiencing PTSD. And 
if we were to think about a combat veteran experiencing PTSD and, and going to therapy for what they're going through and the tr challenges that that is, the therapist plays a really Im incredibly important role. And if we were to really consider one of the modalities that may come up in this therapy is called exposure therapy, which the idea is, is that if we expose somebody's mind, and this is in layman's terms, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but if we expose somebody's mind enough to the traumas that they've endured, then the idea is, is that we're going to create a desensitization. We're going to, you know, kind of lessen the amount of emotional impact or physiological kind of body response that somebody has to those memories and to what has happened to them in the past. And that's this, this idea of exposure therapy. Well, then there's even more high stakes exposure therapy that somebody could be led through, right? So let's say, you know, this therapist, that, you know, somebody that we love, know and love is a combat veteran who's experienced this type of trauma and this PTSD. And they go to, and they go to therapy and this therapist comes to us and says, hey, listen, we're getting a lot of, we're getting a lot of progress that's really good out of this work that we're doing, all of the talk therapy that we've been doing. But, you know, I think there's a lot more still to do in help to, you know, help your loved one process that what happened to them is not currently still happening because their mind is kind of stuck in this loop of like re-experiencing the trauma as if it's happening in the present moment rather than like filing it away like they do, like, you know, like our minds do for like the breakfast we had six months ago. We're not still reliving that breakfast, even if it was really delicious where we probably filed that away and we're not currently reliving it. But in this trauma, they could be reliving it over and over as if it's happening in the present moment. So what we want to do is take your loved one back to the scene of wherever that experience was in battle you know, maybe it's a, a road they drove down in Afghanistan that got ambushed and attacked. We want to put them behind the wheel of a car and drive them down that exact same road. Now, the circumstances are different. The people they're with is different, but the environment is really similar. And we want to do this to try to show their mind that what happened to them is not currently happening and that, okay, and that we can file away that memory um, and no longer have it create this like real visceral experience. Well, my question then becomes, if this is what a therapist would want to do with our loved one, my, my question becomes, how much knowledge and experience and training and what are the ethical implications of that? And what are the possible pitfalls that could happen? How much knowledge would we want that therapist to have? And, you know, like the, the questions become pretty obvious in terms of the answers because we require therapists to go to years and years and years of training to be able to kind of lead people through these types of experiences. Plus we have regulating bodies that, that look at the ethics and, you know, review these type of procedures and all of these different protocols that have to be put in place to like be okay and be allowed to, to take somebody through this type of experience because of the likelihood that they may experience a really negative emotional reaction. And so when we bring that back into the realm of, of sexual violence and we kind of bring it back into, you know, our relationships as partners, then we quickly realize that the, this scenario that we're talking about, this high stakes exposure therapy happens every time that we engage in intimacy or sexuality with somebody who has a trauma history of sexual violence, except we're that therapist. We're that person who has this responsibility because we're going to lead them through you know, an activity that stands the highest likelihood 
of creating a negative emotional experience, a full-blown PTSD reaction, panic attacks. And we're the ones navigating it without a crystal ball. There's nothing that tells us, oh, this one particular moment, this romantic night away, this spontaneous experience, this, you know, kind of quickie in the afternoon, like this is the time that this is going to get really intense. We don't have a crystal ball to tell us that. So all of a sudden, we as partners are kind of put in the situation that we're now that therapist who's leading them through high stakes exposure therapy. And in the event something negative were to take place, there's a fork in the road that we now have to navigate. We either keep them on the path of healing, creating an environment that's you know ripe for them being able to process this negative experience in a way that keeps them on the path towards recovery. Or we react in a way that's incredibly negative and furthering the guilt and shame spirals and we continue to further ingrain that trauma. Well, my question back to you know the therapist leading this combat veteran is how much experience do, do we want that therapist to have? How much knowledge around this, you know, how much trauma, how 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 trauma informed do we want this therapist to be? You know, what are the ethics considerations in this situation? What is the responsibility that this therapist has? You know, because the last thing we would want that therapist to do is behind the wheel of that car, take them down the road that they had gotten ambushed at. And then all of a sudden, you know, our loved one ends up white knuckled, you know, thousand yard stare off into the memory of a negative emotional reaction. And all of a sudden that person, that therapist is sitting over there in the passenger seat just to goes, I, I, I can't deal with this. This isn't, this isn't my issue. This isn't my problem. You need to deal with this. And then just bails out of the car and just leaves our loved one there just to like experience this whole negative thing all by themselves. Like we can, yeah. we can see how that is a pretty dramatically devastating impact on somebody who's trying to recover from this incredibly deep trauma. And yet, sadly, I think this is a, an experience that survivors deal with uh, pretty regularly when dealing in their relationships and the challenges that they face when re-engaging with sex and intimacy after, you know, kind of surviving this type of trauma. And so it's just why I feel like the importance, the, the value and benefit that a survivor gets from having a partner who's informed about the responsibility and, and really accepts their role is, is so critical to the situation. You know, I can absolutely identify with that on so many levels myself, too. Back before I was really open and, and talking about my own life as a survivor of human trafficking, anytime I got into a relationship, if I did have a PTSD flashback or you know something along those lines where it was it was too much for me right that moment, and I said, please, back off just a moment. I can't do this right now. I was met with that rejection, that bailing out of the car, that, that absolute terrifying fear in their face of, I don't know what's wrong with her. Now, and my inability to be able to communicate what was going on and what I was experiencing, what I had experienced, ended so many relationships. When I met my husband, I had already written and published my autobiography. And before, I think, our third date, he had already purchased the book and read the entire thing, which was no small feat. He told me later on that he felt like he got to know so much about me. And when he read that book, 
he said he recognized that he had found the person that he was going to marry because if I could go through everything that I had been through and still smile and be happy and be willing and open to try to find that love, he needed a lot more of that person in his life. That kind of communication, that ability to have him know what it was that I had been through is the reason that we ended up getting married and why we have such a happy functional relationship now. That communication is incredibly important. That support system from that partner is unbelievably beneficial to both people. Mm. I mean, thank you for sharing that. That is just, that's just a huge testimonial to the idea of, you know, a survivor being able to allow the partner kind of into the emergency room, so to speak, like being equipped with the knowledge, being equipped with the, you know, the details of what has happened allows us to understand what we are, you know, what we're up against. And what it does is it puts us in a position, which I think is one of the most important things and mindsets that a partner can bring to the situation is go, it's me and you against this trauma. Yeah. We're a team in this fight. We're not looking at it as, oh, this is you and your trauma and I'm trying to figure out my place in this and I'm gonna stand on the sidelines and just kind of like dip my toe into the water whenever I feel like it might be easy and then out whenever it gets a little too intense for me. It's like the, the only way to battle this, the only way to really truly help is to like be all in and recognize that this is you and me versus this trauma. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, like that's so incredible that, you know, one that you were able to, you know, kind of write your entire story down for somebody to be able to, uh, to take in and for him to, you know, so quickly and early on jump in and read it and really understand it and be compassionate and empathetic and, and go so all in, I think just speaks volumes to his character and, you know, his ability to be there and how important, you know, he just kind of naturally assumed the role and responsibility of what it means to be a partner in a survivor's life like that. That's, that's incredible. Well, maybe it has something to do with being in the Navy because he was in for 11 years himself. (laughs) (laughs) So in our initial correspondence, you mentioned something about in, you know, all of this, one of the greatest things that you were able to do to help yourself was to grow your emotional intelligence. Mm. How do you think uh, the, the regular person listening to this podcast can grow their own emotional intelligence? Where do you think they should start? Well, I think like with any education, it's kind of starting from the place of understanding you know, almost the working definitions of what it is that we're even looking at, right? Like, so understanding what is emotional intelligence, really understanding how, you know, it's getting familiar with a lot of the soft skills that we're not taught as, you know, kids. We're not, we're not given the right opportunities to practice these skill sets in a way that allows us to understand, you know, what it is we're even dealing with. So, know, less abstract is it's really understanding your own emotions and being okay with and comfortable in the, the entire spectrum of the emotional wheel. I mean, there's over 2000 words to define different emotions that we as human beings can experience. And 
you know, unfortunately, we live in a society that's kind of organized itself around really primarily only allowing us to experience, you know, kind of safely in terms of the norms that are created. The a very small fraction of what we, uh, you know, of the positive emotions, right? Like happiness, joy, elation. We can chase all of the the bliss and all of these things. But once we start to get into the realm of uncomfortable emotions, it's like there's even this kind of wave of almost toxic positivity that basically says, you know, stop feeling these negative emotions. Don't feel them. If you do feel them, well, all you need to do is change your state. And yet I feel like that does a disservice because you need to understand your feelings because feelings can be like signals to your body and to your mind that something isn't right either in your environment or internally. And if we get to know that, then we really get to know ourselves a lot better. And that's like half of the coin of emotional intelligence because once we understand ourselves better, now we can actually turn around and start to understand other people better as well. And I think that's the, the, the two sides of the emotional intelligence coin is really understanding how we feel in any given moment based on any kind of stimulus, no matter how difficult or uncomfortable the situation may be, we have the ability to control those emotions rather than allowing those emotions to control us. And then kind of the reflection of that is to be able to see and spot and respond to how other people are feeling in any given moment as well. And that allows for communication of how we're feeling. Cause that's really all what human interaction is, is based in, you know, how are we communicating how we're feeling right about any given situation, idea, topic, whatever it is, it's going to make us feel a certain way to start communicating about it. And if we allow those emotions to start controlling us, then all of a sudden things get out of hand uh, and, and, and things just deteriorate. And rather than having this kind of positive, uh, you know, kind of impact on our lives. And so I think that, you know, emotional intelligence, the starting place is to really understand it and then accepting that sometimes we need to feel the uncomfortable emotions in order to understand what's going on and listen to and respond to. That doesn't mean we just stay there and get stuck in like the loop, but this, this idea that we just need to run from those feelings or like not experience them is I, f I feel like it's a detriment to our society and to us as human beings. And this experience we're getting to have is that we're kind of like turning off like a huge part of the experience of it. And, you know, I think that comes at a risk to, you know, all of our interactions with, with everybody else, including, you know, and especially the people that we have in our lives on a, on a really regular basis. And I love that you called it a toxic po uh, positivity because that's exactly what it is. You know, when you're telling people you're not allowed to feel those emotions, I, I kind of take it in a different, different direction. I tell people don't shoot all over yourself. When you say the sentence, I should feel, I shouldn't feel the way that I feel. If you take the word shouldn't out of there, you are acknowledging it. Finally, I feel the way I feel. Mm. Yeah, and that's really important to understand where you are in your own recovery, where you are in dealing with whatever situations are going on around you. It's really important to acknowledge what it is that you're currently feeling so that you can work through it and figure out what your issues are with this situation or with what it is that you've experienced and how to fight back against it. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like as a partner, right, in the perspective of kind of being on the, you know, 
shoulder to shoulder in the trenches through this recovery process. If we, if we have made the decision to be all in and, and really be a team through recovering from trauma, then having a greater sense of your own emotions then allows you to kind of take the next step in that process, which is to be able to self-regulate, which is if I feel myself spike in any type of emotional situation, what are the behaviors that I can instantly employ, the strategies that I can instantly start to do, the tactics that now help me regulate my own emotional state? Because, you know, I, I have to admit, this is not an easy process to be a partner of a survivor. It, there's many, many challenges. There are challenging conversations all over the place, and they come up in a moment's notice, and you, you don't know how to navigate that. And one of the things I talk about in the book is what's called the worst case scenario is kind of, I define it, right? As being a partner, what's the worst case scenario? What's the most challenging moment that we as partners can face? And to me, I've identified that as being in the midst of a sexual situation and, you know, and our partner has a triggering response because if we were to take a snapshot of that moment and just really zoom in on the emotions that the survivor's feeling and the emotions that the partner is feeling and really get a context for what is actually taking place on a physiological and emotional level of both parties involved in a timeline of that process, then we can really identify that this is the most challenging moment that human beings can really be placed in to like test their emotional intelligence and their self-regulation skills. Because in one moment, we're kind of all lost in the state of arousal and expectation anticipation and all the feelings that come with this sexual experience. And then on a dime, just out of nowhere, just boom, you're in something completely different. And it's the most opposite cluster of emotions in terms of, you know, fear and worry and doubt and guilt and disappointment and frustration and resentment and all anger and rage. Like you just, you basically just flip the emotional wheel on its, you know, you basically went from one side of the emotional wheel to the exact opposite in a very short amount of time. And how are we processing those emotions? And I think that that, when we zoom into that moment, we recognize how important it is to be able to have a plan in place to self-regulate so that we're not just leaving it up to the moment of how we're just going to interact, like having a plan in place. It just is, it's so, uh, it's so valuable, so beneficial. And it, it kind of came from, a little bit of what I learned in the Navy because my role in the Navy was being a nuclear operator um, on board a, a nuclear submarine. So I, I operated nuclear reactors. And in that environment, there's so many things that can go wrong that we have to be able to take actions for immediately in order to save, you know, all 130 souls that are on board this, this ship. If in the event that something were to go wrong, we have to be able to take actions immediately. And that's having a plan in place. So we know exactly what to do in the event that we diagnose, oh, this is what's happening. Boom, we just immediately start to act. And we don't have to think about it. And so I kind of applied that same approach to what happens in the, the event that this worst case scenario happens is we need a plan. We need, we need actions to be able to take immediately. So we're not just relying on you know the, the whim of our emotions because more often than not, we're going to make poor judgment decisions if we if we don't have a, a plan in place because, you know, we're seeing this person we love struggle. 
emotions of frustration and disappointment. So how are we dealing with those in that moment? How are we showing up for them emotionally and physically? How are we, you know, responding to our own emotions? In a, are we doing it in a positive way or in a negative way? And if we just leave it up to the moment, well, we might tend to make mistakes in that particular situation that can be pretty critical to this person's recovery process. You know, and I find that really interesting. You and my husband had completely opposite roles in the Navy. He was a flight engineer. So while you were under the water, he was well over the water. Mm. Um, <laughs> and when, when you were talking about having that emergency plan in place to be able to save the people around you, that's exactly what he did as a flight engineer. He was in charge of making sure that he was aware of every vital system on board the aircraft. And if something happened, he had an automatic instinct to know exactly what to do to be able to get rid of the issue or to postpone the issue in whatever way until they could find a safe place to, to land. And listening to you, I started to realize that I think he does the same thing with me. Mm. He has this automatic, just almost an instinct, but it's got to come from training and from studying and from paying attention. Um, if I have some kind of a, a meltdown, which thankfully these days are rare, but if I do have a meltdown and I'm upset about something, he somehow he knows exactly what to do. He mm. knows exactly how to comfort me, how to just let me cry, um, how to just let me just melt into his shoulder or just scream if I need to scream. He'll hand me a pillow so that I can scream into the pillow instead of at him, which is also a huge help for both of us. But yeah. <laughs> having that plan in place and knowing in your head what you need to do if X, Y, Z happens, that's huge. Yeah, it really is. It, it really is. And I, I applaud uh, for, for also, you know, for, for having that, for having the ability to, to have a plan in place because it's so, I, I found it so valuable really is, you know, what we, what we decided, right, was to really look at how do we regulate our emotions in the exact moment, right? Like if we were to go back to that snapshot and the moment that a trigger happens, if we were to like, if we're really zooming in on that moment, then something happened, right? A sight, a sound, a smell, a, a thought, a flashbulb memory, some sort of body memory comes up that reminds her of a situation that she was in when she was being traumatized. And it starts the, the chain reaction of this emotional event. And if we go down to that like split second, there's gonna be a little bit of time between when she feels this, whenever the survivor starts to get triggered, there's going to be this moment of time that I don't, I'm not clued in to what's going on. So there's emotions kind of spiking inside of the uh, of the survivor, and there's this gap between when you know I'm aware of this, but the moment that I become aware of it, my emotions start to spike too, right? Worry and doubt, resentment, all the frustration and stuff starts to come up. It's just the natural feelings that, that we experience. And so the moment that I experience that and I start to clue in, that's when I can, boom, go into the immediate action. And the one thing that I found incredibly valuable was to just figure out a way to just breathe, to to find a way to regulate our emotions. And there was a reason. The Navy SEALs and all of these, you know, kind of special operators, they are put into like really high stakes situations where they have to regulate their own emotions too because they want to make the best decision possible because lives are literally on the line. And they get taught these box breathing methods. They get taught how to regulate their emotions. And so we just like, really, I just kind of implemented that into our life to where 
we had a strategy and plan in place where we would literally before, you know, intimate moments kind of in the height of the kind of acute phase, right? It's more uh, intense situations that can occur because like you said, they're, they're fewer, they're fewer and farther between now, which is, which is great. It's a, you know, it's milestones in the recovery process, but during those kind of uh, months where things are really intense, we had a plan in place that was like, Hey, in the event that you start feeling a certain way and I clue into it, I'm going to start breathing. I'm going to cue you in to start breathing and we're going to do the box breathing technique. We're going to breathe into the count of four through our nose, fill up our stomachs, hold it for a count of four, and then we're going to breathe out. We're going to repeat that until we have both, you know, able to like regulate out of our emotions so that once we start the processing, once we start communicating and talking about things, then we can do so from a, from a much calmer place. And we have an immediate thing we can do that isn't getting lost in the chaos. We can focus on something, you know, and it gives me, and it was so helpful for me because it, it allowed me, because at the very beginning, when I was first going through this, the natural response is to like, want to, is to like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? How do I respond to this? But there's, you know, in, in my experience, there's nothing really you can say that's going to make this any better. And more often than not, what you do say can, can drastically make it worse. And so it really took the pressure off of me to put it on a system that was like, let's just start breathing. Let's just really focus on regulating our emotions. And it was really, really beneficial. That is awesome. And there are uh, many different websites out there that talk about the deep breathing exercises, kind of like the box breathing, like they did in the Navy. Yeah. Um, and it's really helpful for people to be able to have something like that, even if it's just written down and printed out or written down on something that's the size of a business card and kept in a wallet. This can stop so many anxiety attacks and, and uh, massive meltdowns in the middle of moments where you aren't expecting it. It's, yeah. it's handy to have that hand. Uh, sure. I, and I really think that it can help save relationships because I've heard so many times that you know, in these moments, the, things can spiral out of control really fast. And, you know, in the emotional moments when we when we feel like we have to say something and then we're lost in our own emotions. And that's why I think emotional intelligence skills building is like so important because it, in those moments, it's really intense. It's really, really intense. It's probably the most intense moment that I've ever been in, in terms of the emotional context and like the feelings of what are going on inside of me. So drastically kind of ping ponging me from one feeling to another. And if we say the wrong thing that makes the problem worse, then it's, it's also going to make our own emotional state worse as well. And it just starts to gain momentum and snowball in the wrong direction. And so having that plan in place, it really can save these critical, critical moments. Because I feel like these moments are, you know, the, one of the most important times because it allows the trauma to come to the It's not like we are trying to escape these moments. And this is what I realized kind of as a partner going through this multiple times is, is realizing these moments that trauma is bubbling to the surface in the midst of these intimate moments isn't something we need to be afraid of because it's actually something that needs to happen in the recovery process is to like bring to awareness things from the past that need to get worked through. Now, I'm not saying that we're the therapist that needs to be able to deal with it, but we are in that moment of helping gain clarity around what is going on so that when they can get really effective therapy and trauma clearing, go to rapid resolution therapists and like really do some really good work. 
there's a little bit more clarity around what needs to be addressed. And that's just a part of the process. And we don't need to be afraid of it, but we need to have a plan for it so that these moments can be handled with rather than just, you know, kind of flying by the seat of our pants and, and creating more trauma than than's necessary. Absolutely. Here in a moment, I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing to read a little bit of your book to us. But while I'm giving you time to prepare for that, I wanted to ask you, who inspires you the most and why? Ooh. Um, well, that's a that's a that's an interesting question. It's almost like asking me, like, who my top five music artists are. It's, um, <laughs> you know. It depends on what category I'm looking at, right? Because the 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 most inspiring person to me in my life is my wife and all that she's had to come through. Um, you know, she was a patient of the Mayo Clinic for over two years, fighting a functional neurological disorder and kind of complete neurological breakdown from traumatic grief of losing her sister to a drunk driver uh, when she was nine years old that caused her to have seizures up to nine times a day. Uh, Tourette's narcolepsy was in a wheelchair wearing a helmet as an invalid. Um, none of the doctors and nurses could figure out what was going on. Any of the protocols they try to implement would just make things worse. And, you know, it wasn't until she got in to have, you know, one session of rapid resolution therapy with, you know, the founder, Dr. John Connolly, who I credit for saving her life and so many thousands of other people by now. Um, but, yeah, you know, and that was something that happened early on in her life. And she has been seizure free and symptom free ever since that therapy session, and went on to train under him so that she could provide the same kind of training or and therapy to to others. And I've seen, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, get just incredibly life changing help from from my wife, even at a time when my wife was on her, on her own too because she, you know, she's experienced two sexual assaults since, um, and rapid resolution therapy was there for her in those moments as well. And, you know, my wife went and did a, a TEDx talk in 2013 about these kind of life-changing power of words um, and how rapid resolution therapy is like this new modality of therapy that doesn't require years and years and years of therapy, but really seeks to provide results for people in a very short amount of time. And she's, you know, a, a kind of a poster child for it, so to speak, in terms of how quickly these results can come to somebody's life. And so I think that through all of the things that she's able to, you know, that she's had to endure and how positive she still is and how, you know, just dedicated to her purpose of healing and helping others is, it's just, it's truly inspiring. So I think that in that space, like, yeah, she's, she's definitely the person that inspires me the most. That's amazing. What an incredible recovery she's had. Yeah, for sure. For I sure. didn't even know some of those things could be linked to trauma. And that's what I talk about all the time is the trauma and the after effects. I had no clue that Tourette's and seizures and all that stuff could be directly linked and that somebody can overcome all that that's amazing i need to look more into this rapid resolution myself oh my that's gosh cool. please yeah i'm I, i'm gonna be screaming it from the rooftops for the rest of my life because i feel like you know dr Connolly has created this modality that is i i truly believe he's like he's one of those living people that we look at 
in history like a Jung or a Skinner that have impacted the realm of psychology uh, and mental health in these like quantum leap kind of ways is that this therapy and this, this protocol that he's, he's, you know, created and, and is training thousands of people all over the world to, to implement in their practices. It's, I mean, in my mind, it's Nobel prize winning discoveries because it's, it's that powerful in people's lives. And it's wow. like, it, it, the results are incredible. I mean, you know, my wife was having seizures up to nine times a day. And in one, two and a half hour session, after two years of like the top medical professionals trying to figure out what was going on, it took him two and a half hours of a conversation that was more like, if you hear it from my wife, like it was a fun conversation. It wasn't a painful moment of reliving traumatic memories. It was helping her process and her mind rewire the data. And it was a fun process where she was laughing a lot and it was like this modality just has to get shared with the world it's 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 that powerful that is amazing Uh, have you got a part of your book ready oh i believe so yes awesome i'm gonna let you take it away all right so what i want to do is talk about um pain pain feedback loops because it's a part of the this partner process that I think is, is really, um, it's something that we really do need to consider with how we're managing our own role, as well as the impact that this trauma is actually having on us. And so I'm just going to read this little excerpt from the beginning of the chapter on pain feedback loops. I want you to think about a time when you were at a live concert or just listening to someone talk through a microphone and their voice was coming out of some speakers. Do you remember ever hearing that loud, screechy, squealing sound? It's that loud, high-pitched noise that only continues to grow and grow until either someone does something to make it stop or it blows the speakers. Well, that noise is called feedback in the audio world. It is created when a signal, such as someone's voice, is fed into the microphone and comes out a speaker, only to re-enter the microphone and try to come speaker. It does this over and over really fast until that sound starts to swell. Because sound is actually just constant energy waves, this begins to build and stack on itself, creating that annoying sound that we know as feedback. Now think about this. Your partner shares with you the story of their firsthand trauma. It's brutal. And of course, brings up some powerful feelings in you. Remember, what happens to our brains when we visualize events taking place? It can cause all types of emotions. Now, if we allow these emotions that we feel to come out of us at the point that our partners are sharing their pain, it can have a really negative impact on them. Remember, our primary goal is to create the healthiest environment for them to be able to heal themselves. So if we allow these negative emotions that we are feeling because of what they just shared with us to come out, here's what happens next. They begin to realize that they have caused you pain and link that, consciously or subconsciously, with the act of sharing their story. They then begin to shut down because they instinctively don't want to cause you pain. This means that an alarm got triggered and now they feel it is unsafe to open up emotionally. Their healing process is stopped because their focus is now on your healing process. This is not the result we want at all. Trauma is something that is really complex and not easy to talk about, even with the people we love the most. The burden of guilt 
Anger, shame, stigmas, anxiety, depression, sadness, grief, and so many other emotions can cloud our ability to open up and be vulnerable. Just the act of being vulnerable can cause a whole lot of emotions to come up to the surface that can make us scared that we may have made the wrong choice to even open up in the first place. Now, remember when I shared the story in an earlier chapter about how Kristen was scared that I was going to leave her because she assumed I wouldn't want to have to deal with something so intense? This is a real burden that survivors often carry, that if they open up with someone, if they are raw and vulnerable in their woundedness, the person they open up with will leave them. So we as partners have to be really good at holding back the urge to express our pain in these moments when they are actively sharing their pain. This time really needs to be about them. This is easier said than done, and it is vitally important to their healing process. This doesn't mean that your healing from secondary trauma isn't important, though. It absolutely is. This is what we are going to talk about for the remainder of this chapter. How can we, as partners, heal in a healthy way without creating a pain feedback loop in our relationship? Wow. I can see so many people getting value from this and learning how to be able to support their survivors. What's the name of your book? Oh, it's called When Your Partner Says Hag Me Too, Your Role and Responsibilities in Their Recovery Process. And where can people go to find this book? Um, It's on Amazon. It's on barnesandnoble.com. Uh, you can go to seanhamilton.com and there's links there that you can get the uh, the print version or the ebook version. Uh, I will have an audio book coming soon. I'm working on that. It's in the process. So it'll be on Audible at some point. Very cool. And for the people who are wondering... Uh, there's so many different ways to spell Sean. It's S-H-A-U-N, Hamilton.com. Correct. Yes. Okay. And Sean, there's always one more question that I love to ask people before I let them go. It's my favorite question because it kind of ties everything all into what it is that we're talking about in its own way. What is one thing that you love about yourself that's not related to your physical appearance? Hmm. I think that my ability to show up in tough situations, I've seen it make a drastic impact in the people's lives that I really know and care about. And it is something that I, that I cherish. It's something that I continue to work on and get better at. If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, please make sure you check out the episode description. There you're going to find links on how you can learn more about this guest, links to connect with them on social media, and how to support the podcast. Remember, I don't get paid to do this. My boss is a bit tight-fisted, but I can say that I work for myself. In short, this show really is all about the guest. If you've enjoyed their interview, please feel free to let them know. You can also tune into my other podcast, Growth from Darkness, which is co-hosted by a lovely lady from Australia. We talk about what trauma responses are and healthy ways to move beyond the past. For more information, just go to growthfromdarkness.com.